Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim Mark. Today is episode 47, and we're going to be interviewing Steve Z. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing just fine. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing well, sir. So let's dive in. Tell me a little bit about growing up in your childhood. Well, for the most part, my childhood was, um, would I say, probably semi-normal. Um, I had a very controlling and manipulative uh, mother. She was, uh, she kind of wore the pants in the family. And uh, not to say that my dad wasn't a good man, but my mom was very, very controlling, uh, manipulated everything. Um, How did she manipulate? Well, you know, like when I was growing up, I was um, led to believe basically the only thing I was going to be able to do with my life was uh, something mediocre. You know, I'd always mention, you know, wanting to be a uh, something in the healthcare field, either a nurse or a uh, doctor something along that line and i was always told well you, you know you can't do that you're not gonna be able to do that said uh well, you you're gonna go to school you're gonna graduate high school and uh you're gonna get a job you know factory job something like that and just make a you know uh, a living for yourself and um she uh you know now that i look back on it uh, she was emotionally and mentally uh abusive person. Um she led me basically <laughs> I was gonna be mediocre, just middle of the road, you know, from the time I, I can as far back as I can remember, you know, um I was told that this is you know, middle of the road's gonna be the best you can do. And um so I grew up with this thought. Um all my life and then but now now when i got into adulthood my mom um uh was also abusing benzodiazepines um she was uh uh she popped a lot of uh valiums and uh ativan and stuff of that nature and um i didn't realize it at that time because i was too young to know anything about that um, but as I got as I got older, you know, the the truth came out about it. And um uh, I done mediocre in school, you know, my um I was bullied a lot. Um I was a Hispanic male that was overweight and at that time in Alabama there weren't too many Hispanic people <laughs> around. I think me and my family was about about it you know and so i was always too brown to be white too white to be brown and so the kids never could kind of figure out where 
I was supposed to fit in. And so it, it was a constant struggle every day in, in school and even in summer vacation. I struggled with uh, being bullied constantly um, morning, noon, and night. And uh, But I think uh, the biggest thing uh, as far as my childhood goes, it happened when I was uh, about 10 years old. I was... Um, sexually abused by my babysitter's boyfriend. Um, I think that was kind of a turning point in my growing up. Um, they had been drinking. Um, she was babysitting me that night for my folks. And uh, he came over. They both were uh, been in my dad's liquor cabinet. And uh, so I was... Uh, sexually abused uh, by him on two different occasions. So the, ba the babysitter was there while he did it? The babysitter was there. She uh, she even, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, joined in, you know, uh, the second time around. And this was somebody that I had uh, adored like a sister because I, I was, uh, I didn't have a sister. I had two older brothers that were already out of the house and, you know, doing their own thing. And so I looked at her kind of like a sister and uh, we would go places together. And uh, this is somebody that I would have trusted with my life. And, uh, and when that happened, uh, that word trust became a very, very big issue. Uh, at that point from then on it, that word trust, really didn't exist in my vocabulary for, for many, many years after that. Um, and so I struggled with that. And, you know, everybody was telling my mom, you know, he needs to go into therapy. You know, he needs to see a therapist and, and deal with this. And she why, were why were people saying that? Was Were you acting out? What kind of things were you doing? I got, I got, uh, I was starting to not do my schoolwork, uh, acting out towards authority figures, um, acting out toward other students. Um, if you was a male, especially if you was a male authority figure, I didn't have another for you. You know, I, I, you know, you could, you could tell me the sky was blue and I'm going to swear up and down it's purple. And so, you know, we had several meetings with, uh, school officials, and they said, you know, we think he, you know, needs therapy, you know, to, to deal with some of these issues. And my mom was that headstrong, no, this is something, you know, we're going to deal with at home. And um, by the way, my mom was one of those fire and brimstone Southern Baptist um, top. <clears throat> this is something that we're going we're gonna to deal with at home. Um, we're going to cast out this demon and yada, 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 plus tax. And we're going we're gonna to continue alive. We don't need any therapist. We don't need nobody coming in and telling us what's what. We, we don't need any of that. We'll deal with this at home. And so I kept getting, you know, in trouble. Uh, I was suspended uh, several times uh, from school. Uh, so I was taken out of the public school system. Um, when I was 14 
and I was put in a private uh, Christian uh, junior high. And, you know, there for a little bit, I, I, my grades went back up. Um, I started doing a little better as far as uh, with my behavior and, and uh, my emotional uh, state seemed to get a little better. But then again, after several months, I started down that slope, slippery slope again, and I was getting in trouble. I was uh, causing fights. I was causing disturbances. Uh, you know, I started stealing, you know, um, I was basically doing anything to be different. Anything that might've get me noticed. Now that I look back at it, I was looking for attention, whether it was negative or positive, but you know, it, if this got me attention, <clears throat> if trouble got me attention, uh, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and so I, you know, my teenage years was just a, a roller coaster, up and down, up and down. Um, I failed the ninth grade uh, twice. I had to repeat it twice. Um, so the decision was made by my parents when I was uh, uh, 17 that I was going to take the uh, GED and I was going to... Uh, uh, go to some kind of vocational school, you know, some kind of vo vocational training, uh, you know, pipe fitter or something along that nature. And so I passed my GED and tried the uh, technical college route. It didn't work. Um, by this point, I had already started. Uh, what, why didn't that work? Um, I... The attempt, uh, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't make it work. Uh, I, you know, I, I had already started drinking by this point. Um, I was already staying out, you know, one, two, three o'clock in the morning and then try to be at class at 745. Um, I was falling asleep in classes. I was failing classes. Basically, I, it was just a miserable, a miserable period. You know, um, my dad had paid out, you know, a uh, substantial amount of money for, for that time for tuition and books and uh, stuff of that nature. And um, he gave me several tries at it. And I remember one, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, I took the tuition check to the school, paid for it. A few days later, I figured out, well, if I drop, if I drop now, I'll get 75% of the money back and I don't have to tell my old man that I dropped out. And um, so I took some money. And, uh, that was the very first time that I've experimented with any kind of uh, uh, mind altering substances uh, was on that day that I got that uh, money back. And, but I had already been drinking and uh, because I figured out when I drank, I was like everybody else, whether I was uh, white, brown, whatever color, however my look looks was. If I was if I was drinking, I fit in. Everybody liked me. I was the life of the party, so I fit in at that point. All I had to do was drink. That's all I had to do, and I could fit in with everybody. So that that was basically my childhood, Jim. It was just kind of an up and down, you know. Um, 
the, some emotional things happened and you know I started my my drinking and, and substance to be um at about 17 years old is when how I much what how much did your childhood play into your substance abuse uh, I would probably say a large portion probably if we had to put a percentage number on it I'm probably going to say 75% of it because I always had this feeling of not being enough, that I wasn't adequate. I, I, I dealt with that for years and years and years. That I, me, the way I was, uh, I wasn't any good. I wasn't worth anything. And when I was using... I had all these friends. I had all these people that just loved to be around me. That's all that came back. And all that stemmed from the, the childhood that, that I grew up in, uh, that where I was bullied, where I was picked on, where I was constantly put down and, you know, made fun of. And, and, and I'm not on this war is me trip. I'm just being totally 100, you know, this this is the way it was and and as i got older all these feelings that i thought that i had put aside had put back you know they were still there and uh so it it played a it played a big big tremendous role in my substance abuse tell me about 17 and moving on forward once you started using well I actually, uh, I started, uh, the very first drink I ever had was at a uh, Southern Baptist uh, youth retreat, believe it or not. Our youth pastor, our youth pastor actually brought beer for the, uh, for the kids. Wow. Yeah. That's that no was, good. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but we all thought he was just super cool, you know. We well, thought of course. he was best you know here we are 17 years old in, in a tent with a can of you know Budweiser hey that that was just you know that was it that that was the best moment of my life you know thinking back you know and that was the first um drink I ever had and I, I remember I had three that first time that very first time I drank I had three and I remember the next morning I felt so sick that I said, oh, my God, I'll never do that again. I will never touch another drop of alcohol as long as I live. And I didn't for a few days. Um, and so it started as a weekend thing. You know, we, we all my buddies, uh, which I thought were buddies, uh, but we would get together and we always had this one guy that was older than everybody that could, you know, make sure we had alcohol. And uh, so it became a weekend thing. Um, and then when I got about the age of uh, 18, I had got a, uh, my first uh, full-time employment, you know, uh, adult job is what I called it. You know, I was working at a factory. And so it became uh, weekends and maybe a day or two during the week, you know, I drank. Uh, and then it became uh, three or four days a week. Uh, 
And then next thing I know, I'm getting off work, um, start drinking then. And I quit drinking when it was time to go to work the next morning. And so this went on for, you know, from the time I'm about 18 to I'm about, I don't know, 20 or so. And then I remember this guy that always hung around, around us. He handed me a red capsule one day. He said, look, man, he said, I want you to try this. He said, you know, uh, I think you'll like it. And I said, well, what is it? He said, well, you know, let's try it, man. He said, I promise you, you're going to feel fantastic. Take this, a couple of beers, man, you're going to feel right on. So I did, you know, I, I took one. And at that moment, I look back on it. At that moment, the slot switch went on. When I popped that capsule, the, the, the switch went on. And I loved it. And uh, it was actually um, coding. what it was. I loved it. I loved the feeling. And so from that point, you know, um, this guy taught me how to doctor shop. He taught me how to go to doctors and uh, uh, do my thing. And so how old were you at this point? I I was about 20 at this point. And um, he taught me, you know, what to say, like if I went to emergency room, what to say. And uh, um, how did you take the codeine uh, by pill? At that time, I was taking it. I was taking it by pill. um, And it started out being one, maybe two at a time, you know, and and then I'm thinking, well, wow, two makes me feel this way. What would three make me feel like? So I, you know, I'll take three and then four and then five, you know, and um I I was just taking them at that time, um, you know, by mouth. And um then when I got about twenty-four, uh I was introduced to uh hydrocodone for the very first time. And um I was taught how to, I was showed to crush it up, you know, snort it. And so, you know, I started doing this and, and, you know, um, I was doing the whole doctor shopping thing. You know, I was going out of town. I was going, if I had to go out of state, you know, and at this time they didn't have all this, you know, computer link stuff that they have now, you know, you could go to several doctors in the same area. And at that time, they wouldn't link together like they are now. And so I started, uh, you know, the doctor shopping, the, uh, the, then I started buying them, you know, on the street. And, um, but I always kept one thing in mind. I said, I am, I don't have a problem. I'm not addicted. Why? Because a doctor is prescribing them to me. So if a doctor's prescribing them to me, I'm, I'm, I don't have a problem because I, you know, by this time I already had a couple of people saying, Hey, you know, you might need to look, you know, at what you're doing. And I'm like, Hey, do you see me living under a bridge? Do you see me holding up a sign saying we'll work for food? No, you do not. These are, I'm, I'm smiling because I was just reading about denial. I was just writing an article about it for us. And yeah, part I, of that is comparing to other people saying I'm not that bad. These are all signs and symptoms of this. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. And I will say, you know, how can y'all even say I got a problem? I go to work every day. Um, I'm not, you know, out here, hey, buddy, can you spare a dime? You know, I'm not doing none of that. I'm not going out here and hanging out and buying them from some guy in a van that's wearing a trench coat. I'm not doing that. You're, you, know, you were in major denial. I, major. I mean, plus, you know, because I was getting them from a doctor, a legitimate doctor that went to medical school that has a medical license. That's where I'm getting them from. So how dare you say that I have a problem? Because, I, you know, I don't. I, I'm I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do in life. I just, I have this extracurricular thing that I do, but I'm not causing anybody no problems. I'm not harming anybody. So please don't harp on me. You try to put me in the class of, uh, you know, I may have an addiction problem. Don't you even dare try to put me in that class because I don't. Go look in an attic and then come back and look at me and see what you see. You won't see none of the similarities, buddy. I'm telling you. I'm I'm as clean as the sheets, as a proof of sheets. So please don't try to tell me I'm an addict. And so so this is the way I fought, you know, and, and I fought this way for so many years. You know, I, I thought, you know, I, I'm not, it's not causing me any problems yet. You know, so... Uh, my, you know, it just escalated, and um, and I was in denial. I was in the worst phase of denial that uh, I could think of. You know, I, I there was no way I had a problem, and I, I thought that way for many years. How was your um employment? Well, uh. Starting from when you were young, like when you were, so did you first, I guess I should ask, did you go to college? Um, I went to, uh, like, you know, like I was telling you earlier, I went to uh, technical college off and on for, for some time. I never did, you know, graduate with any kind of degree in anything. Uh, I got my GED, of course. And so I went to work um, at a, uh, manufacturer here in town that made uh aluminum ladders and um uh, so i went to work for them on a production line and uh i was able what, to hold what were you doing on the production line what was your job on the production line um, i would assemble the uh bottom end of the ladder you know the the uh the plate that you put down on the ground when, when you put a ladder down on the ground the, yeah like the, the four the four yeah yeah, that's that, that's what I've done. I assembled those, um, and I was able to actually move up. I became a, a shift supervisor on my line, um, and I actually held that job uh, for six years. Um, I worked, uh, you know, I had a couple of days that I'd miss uh, for medical reasons. But, um, you know, I held that job for about uh, six years, and uh, and then that's kind of when... Uh, and I'm assuming your medical reasons were to get you got too hammered the night before. Medical reasons. Quote, unquote. <laughs> Quote, unquote. Yes. Um, um, but, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, but, um, and that's kind of when I lost that job, um, 
I, I was fired. Uh, I was terminated uh, from that job. For what? Uh, um, I had gotten uh, hurt. Hurt uh, on the job, which uh, would require you to go to a workman's comp doctor. And if you scream and yell loud enough, well, you know the rest of the story. So I, I got hurt and I wasn't thinking clearly. And so they sent me to this uh, clinic and they hand me a cup, you know, and make a long story short, I failed the urinalysis. Um, and so I was terminated for that. And um, so basically, it kind of my employment record kind of took a major dive at that point. Um, I had to move back home. Uh, I had to move back in with my mom and dad and um, I'd have one job for a couple months. Then I'd go to work somewhere else for a couple months. Uh, and um, I just couldn't, I just couldn't hold down any kind of job because uh, now that I look back, I wasn't, physically, mentally, or emotionally capable of holding down a job because I, you know, at that point, I I, I didn't think of any it, that it had anything to do with an addiction, anything, you know, and my dad kind of got, kind of watched everything, and uh, so when I was about 28 is when I went to my first um uh, treatment program when I was 28 and by this time I'd already had about one two probably about eight or nine jobs um I mean it was so bad I couldn't even hold down a fast food job it was I mean, because of your addiction strictly because of my addiction I couldn't hold down um a fast food job you know um were you I doing was, were you using during the day oh yeah I was uh at by this point, uh it was it was around the clock, you know, when I hit the floor in the morning, you know, I had to have uh I had to have something to, you know, before I could even eat breakfast. What was the main so, thing you'd have? Uh opiates. Um hydrocodone, hydrocodone. Yeah. Uh, Percocets, you know, uh opiates. You know, I, I I had to have something in my system 20, 24 hours a day for me to even to be able to walk to the mailbox. You know, I will never forget the first time that I I ran out of something. I thought I was dying. You know, I, I thought I, I got the worst case of the flu known to mankind. You know, I didn't know anything about withdrawals. Withdrawals are something that happens to addicts. You know, so I didn't know what was going on. All I know is I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't go to the bathroom. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I dang sure couldn't get up and go to work. Um, and so I lost that job. Well, I lost several jobs because of the withdrawal thing. And um, so it got to the point that, uh, you know, I had to have something in my system around the clock. Uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And um, so it, it had became uh, about 
by this time I was, uh, now that I look back, uh, I was uh, in uh, major addiction and, and was still in denial of it. And it was this time that I went to my first treatment center. Uh, my dad had kind of, you know, noticed some things going on. He had found some uh, empty uh, bottles in my in my room. And uh, so I went, at, at 28, I went to my very first uh, uh, treatment program, 30-day uh, program. Uh, I stayed the 30 days. Uh, I was in there, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, God, please help me. Yeah, I'm a, oh, yeah, that's me, that's me. Oh, yeah, I, I need help. Thank you. Uh, I, I've done the 90 and 90, you know, I've done the, uh, got a sponsor, you know, uh, I got all the newcomer bumper stickers on my car, you know, uh, let go, let God, uh, one day, at the th I mean, it's all over my car, you know, I got every bumper sticker known to mankind that's got anything to do with, with recovery, you know, at this time, because I'm trying to get people off my back. I just need people to back up, you know, and so, I've done all the things that was uh, required of me, you know, and I got a sponsor and uh, then me and my sponsor ended up using together one day. And, <laughs> you know, uh, I think the very first time I think I had like a hundred days in, um, and I started uh, using again. Uh, after it was uh, on my hundredth day, I started using again, and uh, and it was a pattern that would continue for, <clears throat> for many years. And, and then I moved down to Panama City, Florida, when I was thirty-three, and that's when everything really escalated. That's when everything really just uh, skyrocketed. You know, when I moved to Florida. Um, that's when everything just went bad from bad bad to really worse when I uh, moved to Florida you know um, I started um, on heavier stuff when I moved to Florida I had a, a gentleman tell me he said hey you know I know you like opiates you know uh, he said I got something I want you to try he said you snort it I said, well, what is it? He said, let's try it. He said, if you like opiates, you're going to love this. And so he cut me out a line. And I remember it was real brownish looking, you know, and I'm like, well, what is this stuff? I said, I, I kind of would like to know. Pure opiate, man. He said, pure opiate, just, you know. And so I did, you know, I took a dollar bill, wrote it up, you know, and Man, I remember five minutes later, I'm in heaven. You know, I'm I'm in the the, the euphoria was off the off the charge. I, I was in total heaven. And I remember him looking at me, he said, Here, he said, This first this first little bag, it's on the house. It's on me. You know, here's my phone number. If you decide, you know, you want want a little something, something, give me a call. Well, you know. As smart as I thought I was, I, I I didn't know what I had just put in my system. I didn't know. He didn't tell me. 
and I really didn't start pushing the issue because it felt so so great. You know, I, I didn't push the issue of what it was. And I remember when I found out what it was, I remember at first feeling this shame, this guilt, this, this, oh my God, I can't believe I just done that. You know, yeah. I becoming what I swore I'd never become. And I'm becoming one of these people that I would point at in the street and said, oh my God, they need to get a job. You know, I'm becoming that. And um, that was the very first time that I ever tried heroin. Very first time. And um, so this uh, this started a pattern of um, I was uh, I had got married and it didn't last too long because I became uh, emotionally and physically abusive. Uh, I bills were not getting paid um i was i was taking her money my money any money that came in the house was going toward uh my my addiction um she had two kids from my previous marriage when, when we got married and and i loved these kids with all my heart that they they were they were so wonderful more girl twins and and, and they were so wonderful and um uh, but I ruined this marriage. I mean, uh, uh, she was a good lady. She was very good to me. Um, my family loved her. Uh, her family loved me. And, um, but my drug addiction just, you know, I became emotionally abusive, you know, mentally abusive. And then there toward the last uh, year that we were married, uh, I became physically abusive. Um, they, um, I was pawning everything in the house. We didn't have a TV in the house. Um, I had lost uh, two vehicles because I had pawned the title and then, you know, couldn't get them back. Um, bouncing from job to job to job. You know, I hold a job a couple months here, three months there. You know, I lose it and I'd use the same excuse. You know, well, I got laid off or, you know, or, my biggest excuse was I got hurt and they're not going to let me come back to work. And uh, so after a, a short time, um, about five years, I, I think the marriage lasted uh, almost five. Uh, you know, she uh, she uh, called me one day because we were separated and she said, look, you know, I want a divorce, you know, you need help. She said, you desperately need to get you some help. And of course, I cried on the phone, you know, sweetheart, you're right. You know, I'm ready to um, turn this thing around. You know, if you just give me one more chance, you know. And she said, look, you get you some help. You prove to me that, that you're trying to help yourself. She said, we'll talk. We'll talk about it. But these are some things you're going to have to do first. And so, therefore, I entered my second treatment center, you know. Because um, I wanted to get my, you know, I wanted to get my wife back. That's why I entered it. I wanted to get my wife back. It had not, nothing to do with I wanted to get myself clean and sober. It had nothing to do with that. I wanted to get my wife back. So if that's what it took, that's what I was going to do. So I entered my second treatment center, little small country hospital here in Alabama. You know, uh, 
this is a place you could wake up with a raccoon in the hallway or someplace like that. You know, it was, uh, it was really country. And, uh, so, uh, it's so country that even rednecks would say, man, this is country. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was man. And, uh, so I went there and this was a, it, it was only a, uh, I, I was there 20 days and uh, they recommended I go to a halfway house. And so you were in rehab and then they wanted to put you in the halfway house. They wanted me to go to a halfway house. So they had actually my wife and I was still legally at that time. We were still married. We were just separated. So they talked to my wife. They got her to come up on family day, you know, and this was one of the stipulations. You go to this halfway house, you stay for a little while, show me some stability, you know, and we'll talk. So I'm not, you know, sweet. You know, I got this. I'll, I'll go and stay here for a couple months and I'm, I'm, I'm cool. So I went to this, this uh, halfway house and I had never been in anything like this before. I, I'd heard of it but I'd never been in anything like this before. Um, all of a sudden I'm in this house with 15 other guys. Um, I'm sharing a room with three other guys. Um, I'm hearing, you know, we would have these group meetings, you know, uh, two or three times a week and I'd hear all these horror stories and I'm like, what am I doing here? What in the world? I said, I, this is not for me. This may be for a true 100% hardcore addict, but this is not for me. I just have a little problem with, you know, some opiates. You know, I get a little bit carried away. You know, I pawn everything. Our utilities are getting cut off. Our kids are not getting fed. The dog just died. The wife is leaving me. I can't hold a job, but I'm not a hardcore addict. You know, so despite all these signs and symptoms that I could see, I'm not a hardcore addict, so I don't need to be here. So I think I stayed like 64 days, and I wasn't even on phase two of the program. And, uh, of course, I couldn't, I wasn't court ordered, so they couldn't, you know, make me stay. So, you know, I went to the uh, uh, gentleman over the house one day, and I said, you know, I want to go home. And I remember him looking at me. I will never forget this. He looks at me. He goes, what home? I go home with my wife and kids. He goes, I'm going to rephrase my question. What home? He said, buddy, you ain't got that. He said, you, 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 don't, you don't have that. He said, can you not see that? You don't have that. He said, what you got is what's in front of you. And I said, sir, I said, you know, me and my wife have talked and she told me if I do this, this and this, you know, everything's going to be fine. So, I mean, he couldn't hold me. So after countless times of him trying to talk me into staying, I signed out, went home. Uh, she allowed me to come back. She did allow me to come back in the home. And it lasted less than three months. Um, I was off and running again. Um, I was going to a doctor that I had really bullcrapped good enough that uh, I was getting uh, anything and everything I needed when I needed it. Um, and so 
it ended up the marriage ended up going going south you know she uh, she put me out she uh it was over with i had um i had ruined everything that i came in contact with uh, i was ruining her life uh two innocent kids i was ruining their lives um that the her family came to the point where they couldn't even stand for me to be in the yard you know um it got to the point they didn't want even want to see me at christmas or thanksgiving anything nobody wanted me around because of my actions and because of the way that i was doing this this innocent family these innocent kids that that counted on me to be their dad and every time you turned around i was letting them down every time that there was a school function or something i was letting them down and when they were having to go and stay at relatives or friends houses because the power got cut off or the water or the gas or there was no food in the house and I'm sitting there on the couch with 15 days without a bath of shaving, you know, but I still didn't have a problem. All these people were idiots. I didn't have a problem. And so that marriage ended up going, going just extremely bad. Um, and, uh, so, uh, You know, I think the hardest part is when when you when you hurt two people, two kids that that adore you and they look up to you, and they are putting that they're saying, "I'm so glad you're in my life and that you're my new dad," and then. <laughs> You know, there would be days when there wouldn't even be food in the house. So they went without eating? <clears throat> it's okay. Take your time. Yeah, they, they would, they would, you know, there would be days when uh, there wouldn't even be a, a breadcrumb in the house. And every time I could con somebody out of 20 or 30 bucks with the with the story, you know, I needed to buy food, which was the truth. But I would take that money. Maybe buy a loaf of bread. Maybe. But you would take the rest and put up your nose or down your throat. You know, and then you look over there and you see two kids that are totally innocent of the whole deal. And you see that look on their face like, why does everybody else have this, this, and this, and we don't? You know? Yeah. And, but, you know, I, I was still at that point that I really and honestly still thought 
that I, that I, I don't have a problem, guys. I, here, here's the thing. I can quit anytime I want to. I don't have to do this anymore. I can quit anytime I want to. You know, but then why don't you? Well, I will. I'll prove it to you. I'll do it. Nothing. Nothing. And so, you know, I, I kind of, you know, after we divorced, um, I kind of really, really went downhill. I got into a very uh, depressed uh, mode. Um, and among this time that we divorced, my, my mother passed away um, a few months after we had gotten divorced. My mom passed away. And so I got in this really deep, dark place, this, this really hole that um, I was grieving about my mom. I was depressed about my marriage going south. I was depressed about why is it always going wrong? And I look over here at these people I know, friends I know that are, are their life is just, you know, flourishing and all this. And mine's going to crap every time I turn around. Why is all this happening? Why is my health starting to fail? Because about this time, my health started failing because of the addiction. Uh, uh, I was... But I got in this depressed mode. I'd done a lot of depressed eating. I went from weighing like 200 pounds to up to almost 400. Wow. Wow. I, I was just like, you know, just constantly. Every time the elbow bend, the mouth flew open. It was just constant. You know, I go to KFC. I get a bucket of a chicken, a, a meal big enough for a family of four. Okay. And I'm the only one at the house. But now do the math. <laughs> I bring I bring that meal home and you would think would well, there ought to be enough there for me to have a couple of days. By that evening, gone. Everything. And I, then I would go to the grocery store and I would buy all this junk food and I was just eating constantly. I was smoking three and four packs of cigarettes a day. I was uh, you know, Drinking. That's why there's Overeaters Anonymous. It's <clears throat> a lot of us addicts. I'm writing a book for us, the group. And in the book, I talk about switching addictions. It's one of the things we do. We just go from one thing to the other, and it's just the other thing's legal. You know right. what I mean? Right. That, 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 yeah, that's, a, that's the biggest thing. You never heard of a uh, somebody getting um, possession of tacos or you know possession of a bucket of chicken or a pair of <laughs> You never heard of that. So, um, because trust me, that was illegal. I'd have been the El Chapo of the food world. I put it, I put it that way because I was trafficking some food. And, uh, like I said, I got up to almost 400 pounds. I had, uh, I had a heart attack, uh, in my early thirties. I want to say I was 35, somewhere around there, 36, maybe. I had a massive heart attack. And um, uh, then uh, about four years after that, I had a stroke. And all of this was due from my lifestyle, uh, the weight gain. You know, I was only five foot nine. So, you know, 
I put on a massive amount of weight. My eating habits uh, with all the fat content I was taking in was blocking arteries in my heart and the extra weight. Um, my health started failing. And along with your health failing, you get sympathetic doctors that say, oh, this guy's in a lot of pain. You know? So with the failing health came the sympathetic doctors that came even more scripts that started, you know, started making me feel a little, uh, quote unquote, better. My depression seemed like it got a little better. You know, I was starting to deal with things a little better. You know, uh, our life was getting a little, little, little better for me, you know, and, um, so things started looking up a little bit after I got out of the hospital having my stroke, you know. Um, so you had a stroke and a heart attack. Well, I had a heart attack, and then about a year and a half, two years later, I had a stroke. And it was all due to the fact of my lifestyle, the the overweight, the the eating, uh, the, the addiction to the uh, pain medication, opiates. Uh, drinking um the 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 drinking problem caused my muscle and my heart to weaken congestive heart failure is what they call it and it gave me also uh, chronic pancreatitis which is a very painful condition and all this stemmed from two things fat and, and the food i was eating uh the carbohydrate or uh, cholesterol cholesterol that's what i'm looking for in my blood system and two, the alcohol was killing my heart muscle and my pancreas and liver at the same time. So all this culminated into a heart attack, then a stroke, which when I had the stroke, I ended up having to go to uh, a uh, inpatient physical therapy rehabilitation uh, facility uh, because I basically I couldn't walk. My, I lost a use of the left side of my body. Um, and so I gained all that back. You know, I stayed in there a couple months. I really worked hard. Um, and this is where I gained an epiphany. Wait a minute. They're giving me one of my pain pills every six to eight hours. There it is. That's all I got to do at home. Just take one every six to eight hours. I'm fine. It don't cause me any problems. That's when I had this epiphany while I'm laying on my back, you know, trying to regain the use of my uh, left side of my body. This light switch. Wait a minute. Oh, that's all I got to do at home. People, that's all I got to do. I just take it like it says on the bottle. I'm fine. That's all I got to do. So I get out. I'm saying this is what I'm going to do. You know, I'm feeling great. You know, I, I, I lost a little bit of weight. You know, I haven't drank in a while, so you know my taste buds has come back. You know, I, I'm, I'm everything is looking up. You know, my head's a little clearer, and uh, so I'm gonna start from this day forward. You know, it says one every six to eight hours. By God, that's what I'm gonna do. One every six to eight hours. That lasted about two days. You know, and it was back. Uh, off again, you know, running again, and this pattern continued, 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 
um, you know, and, you know, then came that day, you know, and, and I don't mean to be jumping around here. I'm just trying to keep everything in. in, in no, you're, you know, do, you're doing, you're doing fine. Keep it up. And, <clears throat> but, you know, the day, the day came, you know, uh, I was already 46 years old. I was already 46. Uh, I was already remarried, you know, uh, and which by the grace of God and the program of recovery, um, we're, I'm, I'm still married. <laughs> we're still, we're still together. And, um, but came that day when sitting in a parking lot of a convenience store, uh, the very first time that I was ever introduced to intravenous drug use, very first time. Uh, I remember, you know, I just bought some stuff from this guy, and he said, "Look, man," he said, "You wasting, you wasting your time, you wasting your money." And he said, "You know, this the way you're doing it, man. You you're not getting, you're not getting your money's worth." You know, so I said, "Well, man, I I don't know anything about, you know, like putting a needle in a vein or anything like that. You know, I didn't know anything about all that." And he said, "He said, hey, you want me to do it?" Man, I don't know. I said, I, but yeah, I, I, I've tried this one time, but if I don't like it, I'm not doing it again. And here's the key phrase in that if I don't like it, I won't do it again. Okay. So at this point, at this, at that very time, it was 8 24 p.m. on a November 4th. When at pump number three at a marathon gas station on the Bessemer Superhighway, he sticks his needle in a vein. And at that moment, the dragon entered my life. That movie, Enter the Dragon, this is my Enter the Dragon moment. That dragon entered my life at that particular moment. I will never as, as long as I'm drawing breath, I won't forget that moment at 8.24 p.m. on November 4th. I will never forget it. Because I remember the warm feeling hit my head. And I remember, oh, my God, dude, you're right. And so for the next um, four years, um, you know, I'm chasing that dragon. I'm looking for that feeling I got that very first time. It's not there. I look for it. I look for it. Once again, old patterns come back. You know, uh, I became emotionally and physically abusive again in my relationship uh, simply because I was not, and I'm not using by no means, and I've told counselors this and, and other people, I've, I'm not using the drugs as an excuse. I'm not, I'm not trying to give me a mulligan for being a total a-hole. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. But what I'm saying is this, I was a different, entirely different person. My personality, my demeanor, everything. Entirely different person. I would 
when I didn't have anything, I was emotionally very, very abusive to anybody around me. And I'm not talking about just my spouse, anybody that was around me. I was very abusive. Um, because of my addiction, my wife and I, in one year, lived in 26 different places in one year. Wow. When, simply because <clears throat> something about when you don't pay rent that people just get awfully sore about. They really get just mad at you. Yeah, pay your rent. When you, <laughs> you, <laughs> you pay your rent, something about people just really don't like it. Wow. So, um, 26 different places. I've got my wife on dragging her 26 different places because, you know, oh, I tell you what, man, if, if, if give me next week and, and I'll get you your money. And a lot of times I would get the money. I was somehow or another, I would get the money. I didn't have the money for rent. That wasn't a problem. But somehow or another, it never made it from my hands to the landlord's hand. Something kind of happened to it in between there. Never made it. So 26 different places. Five different vehicles. You know, um, I would get a you know vehicle, one of these, uh, you know, I save up a little bit, go one of these little buy here, pay here places, get a vehicle, and then I run this scheme and I I'll end up selling it, you know, uh, to one of these. There were a lot of places, especially in the area that we lived, that they would buy a vehicle without a title for junk, you know. So they give you two or three hundred bucks for it and just junk it. They get what they call a junk title and, and, and junk it. So I was doing that constantly. Um, and one time I got a really good deal on a nice, very nice Dodge uh, customized van. It was very nice. The people are taking very good care of it. Gave me one heck of a deal on it. Kept it about two months. Bingo. Sold it again you know, done the same scheme again. So 26 places, five different vehicles, um, several, several different jobs, you know. Um, and then um, I had always heard of people ODing. You know, I've heard that before. But I had never seen anybody OD. I had never been around anybody that OD'd. Uh, and then the day came when uh, I woke up in an emergency room. I didn't know why I was in this emergency room. And I had these teeth down my nose and uh, two or three IVs going. You know, I had OD'd. I, I didn't know anything about that. I knew it took place, but uh, that was my first time ever experiencing, and I was uh, 48, 48 years old, and uh, I remember the doctor looking at me, and he said, look, he said, I'm looking at your medical records here, things that's happened to you in the past, and he said, uh, you don't know how close you came, he said, you were legally dead when you got here, he said, you had no pulse, you had no respiration. It's a, he said, it's only by the grace of God that, that you came back. He said, all of a sudden, you took a deep breath in. Your heart started beating. 
And I said, oh, wow. I said, that's so scary. I said, I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. So I figured if I went back to snorting instead of shooting, I'd be safe. I didn't want to OD again. Well, to make a really, really long story short, um, I ended up ODing uh, on my 50th birthday. 49th, I'm sorry. My 49th birthday, I'm sorry. And I come to an emergency room and I literally woke up with a toe tag on my toe. That's how, yeah. My lips were blue. I was dead. By all intents and purposes, I was dead. And they had already put a toe, a toe tag on my toe. And I came to and uh, I remember I scared the poor nurse to death that was in the room because I just sit, you know, I sit up like, well, you know, what's going on? Scared her to death, bless her heart. And uh, it was at that moment that I know you've probably, you know, everybody's heard the old scenario, you know, uh, your life passed before your eyes, you know, I'd heard it a million times. But literally, in that few moments, I seen from the day I ever took my first drug to that moment and everything that happened in between. The marriage, the failed marriage, the hurt children that I'd hurt, the families I'd hurt, the people I'd hurt that I had stole from. You know, I had stole from friends. I had stole from family. I had, you know, I literally went in friends of mine's wallets and stole money. You know, all, all this, you know, came to me at this moment. And I remember looking at that doctor and I said, I, said, I can't do this anymore. I said, I've been on this road for 20 something years and I can't do it anymore. And uh, he said, well, they said, do you want help? Is that what you're asking? I said, I got to do something. I said, I'm getting older. I said, I'm going to be turning 50. And uh, I said, I, I just can't keep beating my head up against this brick wall that I was beating my head up against. So I uh, went to detox. I went to a medical detox, which just so happens in that hospital I was at, they had a detox unit. And I went in there for three days. Uh, and on the fourth day, I got on a Greyhound bus and I uh, went to a wonderful facility in uh, South Georgia. Um, I don't know if I can, can I mention the name? Is it okay to, of the facility? Uh, Turning yeah. Point. Turning Point in Moultrie, Georgia. Uh, I, I went there. Uh, and by this time, I would uh, I realized that yes, I am an addict. Yes, I do have a problem. So I was willing. I became willing to listen and follow suggestions. So I stayed uh, for 21 days in this uh, 
residential program, and then I went uh, to uh, an intensive outpatient program for six months. Uh, where I stayed away from my wife, I stayed away from everything that I knew for six months. Um, but basically, that six months saved my life because I, I learned how to live. I learned how to live uh, without drugs and alcohol. I learned how to live without being high. I learned how to live life on life's terms. That was my number one issue, is living life on life's terms. Not my terms, life's terms. And so in this six months, I learned that um, it's not always going to be my way, uh, that it's going to be uh, pain and suffering, that everyone goes through pain and suffering at some point in their life. So I learned to live life on life terms. I I learned to, the, the biggest thing I learned was to like me. The, the turning point of my whole addiction was today I could look in the mirror and say, you know, you're good enough just the way you are. I like me. I love me. It was at that moment when I was able to look in the mirror and accept me for me that I started the the recovery process because up until then it was just fake. Everything I was doing was just for show to make this person happy, to make this get this person off my back, yada yada yada. But the one person I wasn't making happy was me. The one person I wasn't doing anything about was me. So all those other times I was fighting to make everybody else happy. But I wasn't doing a thing to change me, to, to do something for the one person I could do something about, the person looking in the mirror. I wasn't doing anything for that person. So on this January morning when I stood in front of this mirror and I realized I love this guy. I really do. I remember I went to group that morning. And it, it was so ironic. One of the first things our, our group counselor asked that morning, he said, I want each one of you guys to think of one thing and give me the answer at the end of group. I want you to think of the one person that's here in this program that you want to like you the most. I want you to name that one person. And I thought, man, is that not a kick in, kick in the head? And so at the end of the group, you know, we, we had a three-hour day group. And about two and a half hours in, he said, okay, I want everybody to, you know, give me the name of the person. And so everybody went around and said, well, I want so-and-so to like me. And this other guy said, well, I want, you know, this person to like me. Or I want you to like me, counselor, or whatever. And he got around to me and he said, now, uh, you. I said, the one person I want to like me more than anybody, me. And I won't ever forget he looked at everybody. He said, you know, that's the answer I've been looking for for 25 minutes. He said, everybody give me everybody else. And it was at that moment that it's like a fog lifted. It's like all this cloudiness that that a big cloud in my my thinking, my emotions, 
my physical being, my mental being, and all that lifted. I realized that the whole time, drugs wasn't the problem. Drugs were the solution to a problem that I had never dealt with. So I started digging in my in my subconscious and all this. And I realized that all the stuff that I talked to you earlier about from my childhood, from the events that happened when I was 10 years old to my controlling mother to the bullying and all that, you know, when I was high using, I didn't think about all that. So therefore, I didn't deal with it. So therefore, it festered. So therefore, it just kept building and kept building because I never dealt with it. So when that class that I was able to like me and I was able to accept me for me and able to self life on life terms, when I was able to do that, the, the real recovery process for me, now I'm speaking for me, okay, it began for me. And I looked back on all the failed attempts at recovery in the past. And it was for the fact that I was doing it for everybody else. I wasn't doing it for me. I was doing it for everybody but me. That's, that's an absolutely extremely important thing. And I was the same way until I learned, I, <clears throat> excuse me, when I first went to rehab, I was like, I'm doing it for this person. I'm doing it for that person. Right. And then when I was in rehab, it kind of hit me. I need to do this for myself because if I'm not the best person I could be, I can't be the best person to anyone else. Absolutely. So yeah. tell us about life not nowadays for you. Well, you know, um, to sit here and say every day is great, you know, I'd be lying. Uh, I have uh, good days. I have bad days. Uh, I have some uh, effects. Um, from my health issues that I had earlier in life, um, I have some uh, uh, coronary artery disease now that I have to deal with on a daily basis. Um, um, but here's the thing, life is good. Even on bad days, life is good. Um, I, I take things one minute at a time, one second at a time. Um, uh, I'm in currently I'm in uh, I've started my second year of studying uh, psychology uh, I'm going after my bachelor's in psychology with the hopes of being a drug and alcohol counselor um, so I'm starting, I'm starting my second year I just made the dean's list I don't know how I pulled that off but I did uh, so congratulations uh, thank you um, <laughs> my relationship with my wife um it's better than it has been. Um, uh, I have uh, mended, you know, some fences and some, you know, there are, you know, as the steps tell us that there's some amends that just can't be made. And, um, you know, but I have mended a lot of fences with some family and some friends. Uh, there's still people that uh, if they see me coming, they will go the opposite direction. Uh, 
hey, that's okay. That's okay. I mean, you know, um, I take life on its terms. Um, and all in all, in short, um, it, life is good. It, you know, I have my bad days, but now I can deal with those bad days. Now I can, when something, when an issue comes up, I can deal with it in a healthy way. I don't have to turn to a drug, a pill, or a powder, or a drink to deal with it. Any any tips or tricks for our listeners or our viewers? Um, the 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 biggest thing that I t- that I tell people, I, I I sponsored a guy here recently. The biggest thing that I tell people is just what what I've said several times is you have to take life uh, as it comes with the cars that you dealt with. Um, You know, we can't, the only person that we can fix is a person in the mirror. We can't fix nobody else. You can't fix your friends. You can't fix your family. You can't fix the way people think about you. You can fix what you think about yourself. That's the biggest thing. You can fix yourself nobody else um so it's like i told uh, my sponsor i said you know concentrate on you do you stay in your lane fix you work on you because that's the only person at the end of the day that you can fix you know you can you can wish well i wish you know so and so would do this or i wish so and so would do that. that that's fine you can wish that all day but the only person that you can do anything about is that person you see in the mornings when you look in the mirror. Concentrate and do you. That's the one thing that I tell, uh, you know, especially newcomers and stuff that has come up and, you know, talked to me before, you know. Um, I just tell them, do you, you know, uh, fix you, work on you. And everything else falls into play. But you can't you can't fix anybody else. You can't fix a situation. You can just do you. And that's the biggest piece of advice I give anybody. Do you. Fix you. Work the program. Work recovery. And it works. You, you get into anything. You, you get out what you put in. That's anything in life. You know. Um, work the program in order. And do you and everything and and, and everything's not going to be a bed of roses. It's not going to be, you know, every day's not going to be good. Every day's not going to be unicorns and rainbows. It's not going to be that. There's going to be a lot of cloudy, rainy, sucky days. But here's the thing. When those days come, you deal with it. You know, you take what you learn and recover and you deal with it. You deal with it in a healthy way. You don't have to run and hide anymore. You don't have to to get under a blanket of addiction to hide from it anymore. You can you you take you take it as it comes. You take life every day as it comes, and you take it at that moment. The main thing is mindfulness, being in the moment, because what you have. It's only what you see at that moment. That's what you have. Anything past that, we're not guaranteed that we're going to be alive five minutes from now. You know, 
I could hang up this call and drop dead when I walk in my living room. God, I hope not. But, I, you know, we're not guaranteed anything. So all you have is that moment that you're in at that, at, at that particular time. And th that's, you know, Jim, that's about all I could really say. You know, I, I'm, I'm not a, you know, I'm a lot like Forrest Gump. I'm not a smart man, you know. Um, so, I, you know, I'm pretty simple. Uh, but I'm very passionate about recovery. I'm very passionate about um, addiction because something that I thought was not real, that only happened to some, almost took me out. And I learned one big important thing about addiction. Addiction is very, very uh, it don't discriminate. Addiction does not discriminate. It doesn't care if you're rich or poor. Doesn't care what color your skin is. Doesn't care what religion you come from. It don't care who your father is. It doesn't care anything about a person, period. It is open to anyone. It does not discriminate. And all those years that I thought the drug addiction was only for those people, like I said earlier, that lives under a bridge or in their car or uh, in the woods, I became that guy. I became the one that lived in a vehicle. I became the one that had to sleep under a couple of hospital blankets in the woods. I became that person. And so it did, it did, you know, it didn't care anything about me personally, or what I had or didn't have, drug addiction, addiction itself does not discriminate. And that's one of the biggest lessons that I learned. And I'm just, I'm very, I'm very grateful for my recovery. Uh, any chance I have to, to like today was, you don't know what a blessing this has been. This has been an absolute blessing. You know, and I thank you so much for giving me this opportunity because I'm no. very I'm very passionate about recovery. And any chance I have to talk about recovery, I do, you know, because it's something near and dear to my heart. And um I uh, you know, I read a stat the other day where nineteen point five million people in the United States, one in every six suffer from some form of addiction and uh so it's 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 very it's very near and dear to my heart and um you know and, and it's people like you that that are doing this is putting this effort out that you do with this podcast that i'm grateful for that are there to give us a voice because so many times addicts are swept under the rug that voice does not matter because of the the past, they people will look at me and say, "Well, he was this, he was that, he'd done this, he'd done that," you know. So it's like I don't matter. And so, but it's people like you that are going out and saying we do have a voice and we do matter. And I'm so grateful for this, and I'm so grateful for what you do, you know, because this is something that is so that I'm so grateful for. I, 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 it would take me all day to, to get that out. I really, really appreciate your kind words. They, they mean a lot. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. 
not to sound, you know, like I'm patting myself in the back, but I want to give everybody a voice. So that's why, you know, during the interview, I try to just let you guys tell your story, get it out there. And the one thing I hear from almost all addicts, and I think you said it was, I hope this just helps somebody. That's the reason for doing it. Yes. I hope that, you know, um, you know, if I become a counselor, which I'm hoping and praying happens, if I can help just one person, and if what I said today might help one one person, then that's that's a blessing. And uh, just me being able to tell my story, though, uh, it's going to help me. It helps me more than it does anybody. It really does. Yep, you know? yep, yep. All right, so I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I just want to say thank you again. And for all our listeners and viewers, click below and subscribe. Also, give us a like if you saw it, if you like what you saw here today. Also, check out our Facebook group. There you'll see under the events tab, we've got a ton of Zoom meetings that we do. Everyone's always welcome and they're open meetings. We also have a Facebook page. So if you can go and give us a like there, it really helps us as well. Um, and also, obviously, we have this podcast that we do weekly where we continue to interview recovering addicts. So check these out. And thank you for listening. And until next time.